1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's finish that chapter today. Turn in your Bible or navigate on your device. Kill the volume while you're doing that so I don't have to feel obligated to make fun of you when your phone goes off. Years ago, I've kind of uh, pointed myself the phone police, and so I would call everybody on the worship team while they were singing just to make sure that they had turned their phone off. Every now and then, I could see somebody's phone glowing in their pocket and wondered, that's not distracting at all, probably. But anyway, 1 Corinthians 14, the topic, the Apostle Paul insists that a believer not only can, but must gain control of their exercise of spiritual gifts in public if they are to benefit others. The title of our message, I'm so excited, I can't wait to try it. I'm about to gain control and I think I like it. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to meet together as your temple. You said that the gathered church was the temple of the Holy Spirit on the earth. Individually we are as well, Lord, but when we gather we are that temple. And that means that you're here to minister by grace and mercy. We pray that you would use this text, Lord, to increase our knowledge of the word and of uh, things that you want us to know, but also to uh, speak to us between the soul and the spirit, Lord, and, and reach us where we have needs and need to be comforted and encouraged and strengthened this morning. Uh, just because the text is about spiritual gifts, Lord, doesn't mean we can't uh, be ministered to in another way. Each of us have come with some questions and, and some concerns, Lord, and we trust that you will meet those in your wonderful way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I'll admit it. I like Three Dog Night. The band, that is, not cuddling with sled dogs. One is the loneliest number. Celebrate. Eli's coming. Easy to be hard. Their cover of your song, rock classics all. Mama told me not to come is the song I found myself humming while reading our verses in 1 Corinthians. A bit of trivia first. The song was written by Randy Newman. Seems out of character for Randy, but a great song. Song features a sheltered, straight-laced young man recounting what was presumably his first wild party in the big city. He was shocked and appalled by what was going on, and so he exclaims, this is the craziest party that there could ever be. In the first century church in Corinth, it wasn't a wild party, it was wild worship. In verse 23, one translation says, so if the whole congregation comes together with everybody speaking in tongues and uninstructed people or unbelievers come in, won't they say you're crazy? Three Dog Night cover version of that would be, this is the craziest worship service that there could ever be. After two and a half chapters, Paul was ready to tell these wild and crazy worshipers how to get control in order to build up one another as believers and to continue to reach non-believers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, others are only edified when you keep gifted speaking under control. And number two, others are only edified when you keep general speaking under control. Let's take a look at gifted speaking in the public assembly first in verses 26 through 32. Disagreeing with Mr. Spock's decision to keep Jim Kirk out of the action, Dr. McCoy exclaimed, you know, back home we have a saying, if you're going to ride in the Kentucky Derby, you don't leave your prize stallion in the stable. Spock answered, curious metaphor, doctor, as a stallion must first be broken before it can reach its potential. The wild worshipers in Corinth definitely needed to break some of their habits. 
Doing so would help them reach their potential in using their gifts to benefit others. And so we pick up in verse 26, after Paul has had this long discussion starting in chapter 12, running through chapter 13 and 14, and now he says, how is it then, brethren? He's going to make simple but profound application of everything he's taught them. Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Different meetings of the church are described in the book of Acts. There was prayer meetings. There was a teaching that lasted all night. There were leadership meetings. And there was a church council. Since each meeting had a different emphasis, different things went on at them. If you read the account of the church council meeting in Jerusalem, you'd probably agree that it would have been inappropriate for everyone to suddenly start speaking in tongues. Likewise, if you, uh, it would have been odd for Paul and Barnabas to leave on an evangelistic tour without having heard from the Holy Spirit at the prayer meeting in Antioch. There were different meetings in Corinth, at least two. We know that they met weekly for a potluck followed by celebrating the Lord's Supper. The meeting described in our verses this morning is a very different meeting. It was a worship service in which everyone had an opportunity to participate in singing, in teaching, speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues and prophecy. Paul added a quick reminder that all things be done for edification with the goal of building up others. That would be a good introduction or ending to this whole study because if that was heated, you would never have a problem in church. It would be impossible. How could you if you are always preferring others and not yourself? If your sole goal in church is to build up others, then uh, you're going to prefer them and um, it, it would just uh, take care of any problems that you can probably imagine. Makes spiritual sense, doesn't it, that a worship service should follow an etiquette. The potential for changing lives for eternity is too great to allow behavior that would undermine the Holy Spirit's work. Left to ourselves, we have a tendency to draw attention to ourselves. We can be rude in public. We can be out of order. We can be interruptive. We can be without situational awareness. And so this then is the Apostle Paul's etiquette for participating in a worship service of the gathered church. They're more like guidelines than strict rules, but they're not to be taken lightly or dismissed. He places extra emphasis on speaking in tongues, not because it is the most important gift, but because it was being exercised improperly in Corinth. They had made it the most important gift and so he had to spend and has to spend a lot of time talking about it to put it into perspective. And so uh, these are really, uh, the more you read them, the more simple they sound. The, the words are, speak for themselves. Uh, they shouldn't be misunderstood. And so starting in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. The number one thing you get out of this right off the bat is that the gift of tongues is controllable. We'll see that all of the gifts are subject to control. The Holy Spirit never overpowers you or takes advantage of you or embarrasses you or makes you seem like you've gone crazy. That was what was happening in Corinth. People thought they were going crazy or had gone crazy, but that gift is controllable. 
Um, and it says here, uh, the basic principles that govern the public exercise of the gift of tongues in every church in every century. And so these are still in play. Let there be two or at the most three. Speaking in tongues should be something that doesn't dominate a meeting. Two or three people might be allowed to speak in tongues to the whole group, and that's all. Each in turn, there's to be no multiple speaking or singing in tongues. Only one person at a time should be exercising the gift of tongues. And so right off the bat, if you have a Pentecostal background, you know that, that this is uh, violated all the time. It's typical in many church services for everyone to be speaking in tongues or singing in tongues at the same time. Uh, and uh, certainly it doesn't follow the two or three uh, mentality. There's just if everyone is doing that. And so um, we would have to say that that's out of order. Let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, keep silent. You must be concerned with there being an interpretation of an utterance in tongues since uninterpreted tongues cannot edify. We saw that at length last week. If something is uninterpreted and unintelligible, no matter what you and I think, it doesn't build up. And so you have to be concerned that there might be an interpretation. So if there's an utterance in tongues that goes uninterpreted, it's a pretty good indication that there should be no further exercise of the gift in that meeting. Uh, so Paul said, yeah, two or three people can speak in tongues, but if you speak in tongues and there's no interpretation, it's not going to benefit anybody. And so uh, just that's the end of that at that point. In verse 2 of chapter 14, we learn, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one understands him. In the spirit, he speaks mysteries. So interpretation must always be prayer and praise from a man to God. It will never be a message from God to men. And we establish that it's not a known human language. It, it's nothing that can be known except by divine interpretation. And so that's that's pretty much it, but it's a mouthful, uh, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics would think that that is how you quench the Holy Spirit. You're telling me that only two or three people can speak in tongues and they have to take turns, and if there's no interpreter, they should keep quiet? Paul is telling you that. Well, they don't agree with that, obviously, because they don't follow that in their services. And so, you know what? Not my problem. Um, I don't think it's the end of the world, you know, that, that people don't follow these things. I mean, we're not going to declare anybody not a church or anything like that, but, but I think people should read this chapter and give some reasons why they don't obey it. So the spiritual leader of the meeting indicates to you whether or not it would be appropriate to have a time of prayer and praise during which the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues could be exercised. As the group prays and praises, you prompted to speak in tongues. You might already know someone there who has the gift of interpretation. If so, you can be somewhat comfortable in speaking or singing in tongues. What if you're not sure if someone there has a gift of interpretation? Well, you might simply share with the leader of the group that you feel God prompting you to speak in tongues. Perhaps he knows if someone is there who can interpret. Or he might chance that God wants to give someone the gift of interpretation as they hear you speak. He'll instruct you what to do. If there's no instruction about the exercise of tongues, it's a good indication that you should refrain or ask about it before you blurt out Shonda Labibi or anything like that, okay? Uh, this, you know, we need to have order. That's Paul's whole point. And interpretation is not a word-for-word -word translation as we talked about last time. You 
don't recognize words and phrases like you would a known language, you're given the sense of what is being prayed. Then you use words that describe the sense of what was spoken to God. And properly exercised, this can be a really wonderful thing when, when you're in the type of meeting that allows for that. Don't overlook Paul's suggestion that you speak to yourself and to God. If you have the gift of speaking in tongues and you're at a meeting like our Sunday morning where uh, it's not, we don't really encourage people to stand up publicly and exercise their gift, when we're in our prayer times, especially at the end of the service, uh, pray in your prayer language uh, like you would at home. I mean, no one's restricting you from speaking in tongues or using your gift. We're only restricting what happens publicly uh, at this particular meeting. And so there's no quenching going on because you can't stand up or a person can't stand up and blurt out in tongues whenever they want to. That's not quenching the spirit. You can pray in tongues anytime you like. And so I would encourage you. A lot of times I speak to uh, believers who pray in tongues or have the gift of tongues. And I say, well, when's the last time you even exercise that gift? And they say, yeah, it's been a long time. Or sometimes if you're a Pentecostal or a charismatic, you only exercise it in public on Sunday morning. Uh, and that's not what it was originally intended for. And so uh, very basic, very straightforward, very easy to understand. They just need to be applied to every church in every century. Verse 29, let two or three prophets, uh, prophets speak and let the others judge. Once again, the leader of the meeting indicates to you whether or not it would be appropriate to have a time of prayer and praise during which the gift of prophecy could be exercised. As the group prays and praises, you receive a word of prophecy. It is often as simply profound as a Bible verse or a Bible passage that you feel prompted to share. Somebody in that meeting needs to hear it, and the Lord wants to edify and encourage and comfort them by it. The, the sharing of the written word of God, the completed word of God in a setting like that is itself prophetic. And I, I gave you an example last week, but... Over the years, many, many times at our Wednesday night service, for example, someone would get up and, and share a scripture, another scripture, another scripture, and, and the, the scriptures actually, even though they're from all over the Bible, they would have a single theme, and they would really minister to one or more people that was there who was struggling or needed encouragement and comfort. And so a lot of times people think prophecy has to be some mystical revelation from God, but it can be just the inspired use of the word of God. And I know people who have this gift, don't even call it the gift of prophecy, but uh, when you talk to them, they're just filled with the word and they just speak the word of God to you in, in ways that really minister to you. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Maybe you'll have a waking vision. Maybe you've had a dream that seems spiritual and you wanna share that and see if there's a, an interpretation or, or whatever. I'm not talking about the kind of dreams you have when you have hot Italian sausage before bed. I mean, I'm talking about something that seems actually spiritual. I had a weird dream last night, but I can't tell you about it. Two or three simply means prophecy should not be allowed to dominate the meeting. All of the gifts are for edification. There should be no overemphasis on any one gift. And then here's something, let the others judge. When someone speaks what they believe to be a word of prophecy, the leader of the group and the group itself has a very real responsibility to judge the accuracy of that prophecy. It's not enough to be in awe that God has spoken. We should look at the utterance from at least two viewpoints, content and character. Does its content agree with the revealed content of scripture? And does its character agree with the revealed character of God? 
Is it against the Bible, and is it something you can imagine Jesus saying? Those basically is the thing. I remember years ago at a home Bible study we hosted, I wasn't the teacher, I was a young Christian, there was a gal that used to regularly prophesy, and we were kind of not thinking that her prophecy was all that biblical because it was always harsh and judgmental. And so I asked the, the leader of our group uh, one night about that, and he was all excited that there was a prophecy. I said, well, do you remember what she said? He goes, actually, I don't. <laughs> I said, well, I wrote it down, here's what she said. And um, it actually caused some consternation between he and I because he was like, you know, we're having prophecies. And I said, well, I'm not so sure they're genuine. I don't, I don't think God would talk to us this way. Uh, it was really, really harsh, you know, about how we were failing and all those kinds of things. And so we, we need to uh, judge these things. Now, this requires some interaction at the time it's given. Some worship services seem more like a seance to me where you can't break the atmosphere with any interaction as if it would scare the Holy Spirit away. That's not spiritual, that's superstition. But this happens a lot. It's like, you know, if you, somebody interrupts and says, well, let's talk about that prophecy. Oh, that's it, you killed it, you quenched the spirit. He's gone, he went out the vent, you know. He was just about ready to break through with revival and you quenched the spirit. So... I'm sorry, but you, you do, you have to stop. And, and you know, the Holy Spirit, if you've, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father and the Holy Spirit, he also asks, acts just like Jesus. And so he's not in his own special category of weirdness or mysticism. So we need to be more natural about the supernatural. Verse 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. Now, first, this statement seems like a contradiction seems to be saying that you can interrupt someone if you suddenly receive a prophecy, but that, that can't be right. Paul wouldn't contradict himself. Paul just told you, let two or three prophets speak. He's putting a reasonable time limit on each one. Some people have a tendency to ramble on. They prophesy or even pray for too long, dominating a meeting. He wanted them to be concise, thinking that there were others who had things to share. And so the idea was you should try and be as concise as possible, thinking that there might be others that want to share as well. You know, being concise is not easy. It's, it's, you know, you can always say a lot. It's hard to say little. And we want to become more concise in our communication and more direct so that we can get God's point across. And so that's what he's getting at. I don't know if you've ever been at a prayer meeting that was dominated by one person. Dale Moody talks about a meeting one time where the guy just wouldn't stop praying, and so he got the microphone and he said, let's move on into the fellowship hall while Brother Frank finishes his prayer. And, and you know, some people, they just, I, I, you know, I don't know if they do it on purpose, but they just keep going and going and going, and, and uh, they're like the Energizer Bunny of prayer meetings, I guess. But For you all can prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. When Paul says you can all prophesy, He's not saying that everyone can and should have this gift because in chapter 12, he told us that not everyone does have it. In addition, he just limited the exercise of the gift to several instances per meeting. He's simply saying that all who do have the gift of prophecy at the meeting should exercise it in an orderly way, one after another, not interrupting, allowing time for each to exercise their gifts. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This might be one of the most important verses in all three of these chapters. In the NIV, it says this, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. 
Occasionally you hear someone reference the Amplified Bible. It's a translation that uses explanatory alternate readings and amplifications to assist us in understanding what scripture really says. Multiple English word equivalents to each key Hebrew and Greek word clarify and amplify meanings that may otherwise have been concealed by a traditional translation method. So here's the 1 Corinthians 14.32 in the Amplified Version. For the spirits of the prophets, the speakers in tongues, are under the speaker's control and subject to being silenced as may be necessary. So the same Holy Spirit who prompts you to speak in tongues or prophesy inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, telling you that not only you can, but you must always keep his supernatural promptings to speak under control, period. Now, could there ever be exceptions to this? If you read the history of revival, real revival, not, not what just people getting excited in a church every week, but when there is real revival that shuts down uh, adult bookstores and bars and gives the police time to play dominoes and, you know, that kind of thing because people are getting saved like crazy. The Great Awakening, uh, that, that kind of a thing, or the Jesus movement. Then some unusual things tend to happen. Even uh, someone as conservative as Jonathan Edwards, the Reformed pastor, uh, talks about uh, during a revival, strange happenings. Uh, you know, people just... Uh, not so much being slain in the spirit, but just almost being mesmerized. And so I wouldn't be against that if it were genuine and if it was a move of God, but that's not going to happen every Sunday at every meeting. And so that's why I said these are not hard and fast rules, but they're general guidelines that need to be applied. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. When the Holy Spirit is truly the source of your gifts, there will be peace and not confusion. No one will go away afraid, thinking you are crazy, having not heard the gospel. When the Holy Spirit is the source, that's the way it is. As in all the churches, in our day, this means Pentecostal churches, as well as conservative churches. No one is exempt or has any other leading of the Holy Spirit. These are his principles, governing his gifts. Rude and disorderly behavior have become all too common in our society. Who brings a baby to see Terminator? Or any of the, those kinds of movies? Well, pretty much everybody nowadays. And why won't they take him or her out when they are crying as if they are being eviscerated? You know what I'm talking about. Babies, man, they can cry. I just spent $10 to watch a movie. I, if I wanted to see babies cry, I could work in the nursery. You know, I just, please take them out. Don't get me started on line etiquette. That's a whole world to me. But uh, anyway, Paul's grace etiquette, etiquette, rather, for the church throughout the church age is not at all hard to understand. Tradition and superstition hinders many from following it. But if they did... It would not quench the spirit, but rather it would release him. Second, verses 34 through 40, others are only edified when you keep your general speaking under control. Guys, don't react to this, but let me just ask this question. Who talks more, women or men? The stereotype that women are chatty Cathy's is one that is fairly ingrained in our society. In the first print of a book called The Female Brain, the author claimed that women use 20,000 words a day, while men only use 7,000. However, 
There were no studies in existence that validated that claim or showed that women spoke more than men. It was a completely made up thing that caught on. An actual study in 2014 found that there was no significant gender difference whatsoever. On average, women speak 16,000 plus words per day. Men speak close to 16,000 words per day. Women speaking in the meetings during the worship services was causing problems in Corinth, but it wasn't just their speaking because they were women. It was a kind of speaking that they were doing. And so verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church. So this is really tough to hear, but it's not so tough to heed once we understand a little about what's being said. Now, let me say this as a disclaimer. Um, Authors are all over the place on this. I'm not saying that we will solve the problem, but I think we have a good perspective. Some go so far as to say that Paul didn't write these words, but that they were added later by somebody else. Uh, And so this is obviously a difficult passage, but we do know that women were allowed to speak in the meetings of the church. Paul referred positively to women praying and prophesying in meetings back in chapter 11. And so we read through chapter 11. We know that it was okay for women to participate. So he must be talking about something different here. If you think about the words he used, you conclude that certain married women were interrupting the public services by speaking out of turn. Apparently, it involved asking questions which were somehow disruptive to the meeting. Their disruptive speaking was a shameful lack of proper submission to God and to their husbands. Uh, So, you know, maybe it's not dissimilar to a classroom situation where the teacher has to stop and say, would you like to share with the whole group what you two are talking about? You know, that kind of a thing. And then, you know, that's that's the first shot over the bow. And then after that, you're going to the dean of students, you know, that kind of, and so, you know, we all know what disruptive behavior is. Men can certainly be guilty of this as well, but they weren't in Corinth. We always need to think about context before we interpret. That doesn't mean we can take a passage uh, that obviously has reference to us today and say, well, that's not for us today because that was the first century. But it is to say that sometimes these problems were unique to different churches. Uh, We saw that when we talked about head covering. There was a head covering issue in Corinth that didn't exist in the churches of the Galatians or uh, the Ephesians, where uh, they talked about, they didn't talk about head covering, they just were worried about the hair being overly braided. And so if we read the Bible carefully, we can get an idea of what is more situational specific to Corinth and what is general to all the churches. Uh, Paul was addressing a specific problem in Corinth involving married women being disruptive. He wasn't establishing a gag the gals order for all types of speaking for the universal church throughout the centuries. He was simply saying, quit interrupting with your out of order questions. Uh, and, And so you might think, well, didn't they, wasn't it obvious? But remember, their worship services were pretty crazy. So let's say this whole half of our service is standing up speaking in tongues and four or five people over here are trying to sneak in a prophecy. I could see some woman saying, hey, what is going on? You know, or something like that. And so it was another of the problems in the worship service that Paul felt that he had to deal with. 
Verse 36, or did the word of God come originally from you or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignored, let him be, or ignorant rather, let him be ignorant. We are not at liberty to develop our own principles regarding the exercise of the gifts as if the word of God came originally from us. So I can't read this passage and say, well, that's not for us because we know how the gifts really ought to be exercised. Regardless your background and experiences with the exercise of spiritual gifts, control must be acknowledged and followed. If you have seen or even personally experienced something different, then you must bring your tradition into alignment with the teaching here in these chapters. To ignore this instruction is to be ignorant. That's what he's saying. It's not a slam or a, a, you know, a, a slur on anybody. It says, if you want to ignore what God is telling you, then that puts you in the category of being ignorant of what God is telling you. And certainly you're not going to be helpful to anyone in that way. Read the Gospels and watch Jesus as he exercises the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Read the book of Acts and see the gifts in operation. You'll find none of the weird, out-of-control excesses that you see in churches today. The only people slain by the Spirit were Ananias and Sapphira, and they were killed by the Spirit. The one church that was acting out of control, Corinth, was asked to come under control. Verse 39, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Don't forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So the gifts, all of them were in operation and they ought still to be in operation. You'll find no Bible passages uh, anywhere that indicate that the gifts will cease before we get to heaven. Uh, there is a passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that says certain gifts will cease, but that is when the perfect has come and the perfect is the eternal state, not the Bible or the church or anything prior to that. Uh, and so uh, they're, they're, in order to try to make the case that these gifts have passed away, uh, commentators, conservative commentators have to make stuff up, quite honestly. One of their big arguments is that you don't see the gifts at, uh, in operation a lot in the book of Acts. And they even say that they dwindle as you go deeper into the first century. Uh, but that's an argument from silence. We would counter by saying, Paul wrote three entire chapters about spiritual gifts and how to use them. It sounds like they're incredibly important to the church, not something that is dwindling away. Uh, and, and so um, there are those who militantly forbid to speak with tongues. John MacArthur, for example, equates speaking in tongues with demons. He says that that's what uh, certain cults do, and so if we're doing it, then, you know, that it's occultic and, and it's demonic. And so those of you who have the gift of tongues and maybe have exercised it publicly, uh, he would say that's false and demonic. And that's a pretty radical statement. No biblical grounds for saying that for such a radical denial and actually a despising of the Holy Spirit's gifts. And so we spent a lot of time, because the problem in Corinth was an, uh, an extreme Pentecostalism, that's what we've spent our time talking about, but there's a whole nother side to this, and that is the conservative who doesn't want to have anything to do with these gifts and actually despises them by saying they don't exist anymore. And so we, uh, we need to keep that in mind as well. Control does not equal quenching. You never quench the Holy Spirit by remaining under control. 
When you're out of control, you give the impression that God is out of control, that, that uh, I joke about it, but that the Holy Spirit is the non-controllable member of the Trinity, that he's somehow completely different from Jesus. You never see Jesus out of control in his worship or in his prayer time or, or in any of his healings or anything like that. You've probably seen healing services on TV or maybe you've attended them. Jesus didn't heal that way, did he? He didn't take off his outer garment, twirl it around, start whipping people with it. <laughs> he made mud one time and with spittle, I mean, you know, and stuff. So I'd go for that if, you know, but uh, you, you know what I mean? There wasn't all the yelling and nonsense and handkerchiefing and, and all that kind of stuff. It was all very natural in the supernatural, casting out demons, all of that. You, sit, you set the spirit free to minister in meaningful ways to those you prefer in the body of Jesus on the earth. We should admit that we are creatures of habit. We like things to be set. Now, we don't think this. We think, oh no, I'm a spontaneous person. I like things to be different all the time. But that, that's mostly not true. And in churches, especially Pentecostal churches, you see the exercise of gifts follow the same order and pattern week after week after week. And so again, not to be overly critical, but in the churches that say we're super spontaneous and we just waiting on the spirit, why is it the same two old ladies that always speak in tongues at the same time in the service saying the same thing? And that's an exaggeration, but it's not far off from uh, services I've attended and things that you have told me about. And so really the Pentecostal church follows a, a pretty strict order. It's just an out of order order. It, it, if you understand my meaning. A while back on Wednesday nights, we'd encourage prophecy in tongues, and we were blessed to experience those gifts in some measure, especially the gift of prophecy. We'll be doing that again, I'm sure. But recently, we've been experiencing something I consider maybe even more extraordinary. We've talked about it several times, but it's very young children who are being moved upon to pray. I remember the first night it happened, I didn't know what to think. You know, all of a sudden we had our, our prayer time. We, we worship and then we have a prayer time right now. And then the kids go to their classes. Then we have study uh, or more worship, you know, depending on what time of the month it is in terms of communion and all that. But uh, so um, this one night, little kids started to pray. I mean, little kids, you know, under, under five. And then some that were in the, uh, you know, under 10 range. And one after another, they started praying. And I thought, well, this can't be real. You know, they're, they're praying for Christmas gifts and stuff. But they, they were super heartfelt prayers for people's healing and for the situations that we were going through. And that's continued for quite a while now. Last week, um, there, I don't think any of the kids prayed. And I was sad. I thought, oh, Lord, I'm sorry that this can't be over, can it? this season where the children are praying. I mean, it was precious. In 40 years of being a Christian, I've never experienced anything like that. I mean, I've heard kids pray before and you know, have your own kids pray and say profound things, that's great. But in a, in a meeting where most adults are afraid to talk, uh, a kid that, who doesn't need to be corrected because their prayer is better than yours, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, it's a move of the spirit. And I would actually rather hear that than uh, tongues and prophecy, but I'd rather just do whatever God wants to do. And so uh, I feel like God's presence is just as strong in that meeting as in any other meeting we've ever had. Jane and Michael greeted their father, George Banks, with 
supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, early tongue speaking. When they told him it was something you say when you don't know what to say, he proudly quipped, yes, well, I always know what to say. If you think you always know what to say, you don't. We ought to rely more on the indwelling Holy Spirit to minister to others through us. My knowledge, my wisdom, my experience, they're all too easily and too often substituted for waiting on the Lord for what he has to say. Uh, silence is awkward when you're ministering to somebody or, or when somebody has just shared something with you. Silence can be awkward. But oftentimes, if you are not given immediately something spiritual to say, not something that you think might be spiritual or might be helpful, just, hey, I'm going to pray for you and let's see what the Lord wants to reveal through this situation. Uh, I've, I've had to learn the hard way over the years that silence is sometimes uh, more profound and spiritual than anything else. And so a lot of times, you know, we have a tendency, especially here in the West, to think, okay, if, if somebody shares this with me, these are the scriptures. I, mean, I have some books that I've collected over the years that are counseling uh, pointers. So if somebody calls and says they have uh, this going on, you look, and here are the scriptures that you share. And I'm not saying that's bad. It, it's the word of God. But the one person who can discern between the soul and the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who knows what's going on in the deepest part of that person's heart, he's the one that can tell you what to say. And it may be something that you would have never wrote down in a book or read in a book or got from a book, but you might have to have the faith to wait on the Lord a little bit and to hear what he wants to say. And so uh, we need to develop more of a, just a, hey, I wanna be used mentality, but I wanna be used by the Lord. I don't wanna use myself and insert myself in these situations. I don't have any knowledge or wisdom or experience that could help anybody except what is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Gino made up a description on Wednesday night as he was teaching through the book of Acts. He called it conduit Christians. Be a conduit through which God, the Holy Spirit, can benefit others with his wisdom and knowledge and guidance. Let's pray.